when I went for a visit to the ashram, there was this time where I was like chopping these potatoes and I was like, this is never going to end. But all of a sudden I got so absorbed in the task and I was on a sort of Kundalini high from the, from the service. And when I wanted to live in the ashram, I thought I could do this. I could be chanting all day, like, you know, peeling carrots and cleaning up after people. And the job that I ended up getting was as an assistant to a Swami. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Blair Glazer to the My Fourth Act podcast. Blair is a writer, an executive and organizational consultant, and a leadership mentor. She specializes in helping leaders step into their authority and create truly collaborative cultures. Blair likes to say authority is attractive, and I love that phrase. I was itching to have a conversation with Blair because Blair has truly lived multiple acts. These acts include living in an ashram, getting a graduate degree in becoming drama therapy, and becoming a licensed psychotherapist, entering her first marriage in middle age, and after decades of living in New York City and upstate New York, packing up with her husband and moving to Los Angeles. Hi, Blair. Hi, Akeem. I'm so excited about this conversation. Me too. To confess, I wouldn't say we know each other well, but we have crossed paths at different stages in our lives and originally in New York. And I most recently had the the pleasure of spending time with you and Aaron in Los Angeles in your beautiful home. Thank you. When you were a young girl or teenager growing up and you thought about who you wanted to be in life, What were you thinking about Blair? I knew exactly what I wanted to be in life when I was young. I wanted to be an actress and a singer. Uh And I knew that because I lived in New York and my parents took me to see the Fantastics, which was then the longest running musical in New York. I remember the smell of that theater and the threadbare covering on the seats, the purple seats. And there was this woman singing right at me. And I had chills up and down my spine. And I thought, wow. I mean, as I look back on it, I think it was my first spiritual experience. (laughs) But I thought, I want to do that and make people feel the way she made me feel. Well, what I'm also, if I remember this correctly, the Fantastics was running in a pretty small theater, right? Tiny. Tiny. So where my mind is going as you're talking is you had a very intimate experience and there's an intimacy to that theater. And if we think ahead to the work you're doing now, there's a level of intimacy in what you do, even though it doesn't look like this, right? Always, always. Intimacy has definitely been one of the cornerstones of my work. I love that you said that for for me too. I've always chosen intimacy over scale. So I know exactly what you mean. Yes. Yes. Sometimes to my great dismay, (laughs) (laughs) but it is really a true 
core principle of mine. Intimacy over scale. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get to talk about it a little more. One of the things that has always intrigued me about you because you've written about it and spoken about it freely is that you spend some time visiting an ashram of a certain denomination, but then you lived there for a while. And and as you know, I've been to that very same ashram. Yes. But unlike you, I didn't move in. So... And that's an, a profound choice to say, I'm going to leave one life and submit, and I mean submit in the best possible sense, to a completely different life. Yes. What moved you to say, hey, I think I want to live in an ashram or this ashram? So around the time when I came into connection with the teacher of that ashram, I was pretty depressed. Um, The classic signs of people that get involved in spiritual kinds of groups. I felt isolated. I had some tools and knowledge about it, which is different than a lot of other people. But still, if we look at the timeline, we were living in the, this was the 80s and early 90s when new age and wellness was booming. There were no psych meds yet. And I had a longing that I felt very gradually over time as I tested it, this teacher and her practices started to make sense to me as a place where I could find the inner connection that I was looking for. It wasn't that I met her and said, I want to move into the ashram. It was a long period of testing and feeling that my life was changing as I was doing the practices and then wanting to have a a relationship with this teacher to get really into the fire of spiritual growth. And there was nothing that I loved more than waking up at dawn and chanting and focusing on my spiritual life. So even though it was a choice, it was also very much a calling. And the last thing I'll say about it is that it was a reset. I mean, I got to push pause on all of that ambitious striving and go to a place where there was a schedule, there were rules I could follow, there was a process that I felt that I was gaining mastery in, and my meals were cooked for me, and I had a room, and that was very powerful. One aspect of that particular community that's very important there was having a kundalini awakening and kundalini as if you know people are familiar with it that is i call it the big energy the the energy of the world and the universe the divine and the awakening as we suddenly feel it move into us in us through us and and it changes how we experience ourselves and how we experience the world and that's part of the attractions of this ashram but other communities so i'm curious uh, Did you have that big awakening? How did you experience that? Or did you yearn? Did you long for it? Well, I will say that I have had experiences of the truth, which is a really esoteric thing to say. And I don't want to take too much of your your listeners' time talking (laughs) about that. But 
I believe the awakening happened in a dream. In this dream, I was in college and in college, I worked as a waitress and I was waitressing in my dream and the bell rang to come pick up the food, but I couldn't find myself. So I went through the double doors, looking all over the restaurant for myself. And I ended up in a party with a lot of smoke and people chatting. I couldn't find myself. And all of a sudden, the teacher poof, comes out in her red robes and walks towards me. And, you know, she's very playful. And she cocked her head to one side and said in her slight Indian accent, so you're looking for yourself in these places. And in the dream, I started to laugh. And she's laughing with me. And she takes me by the hand. She says, come, let's look for you. And that to me was textbook you know, sort of an awakening dream where I realized there was another place where my identity existed that was beyond these physical forms and roles. Yeah. Another memory I have of that community in the center in New York, and I'm remembering it because you talked about having been a waitress, is I would do seva, which is selfless service, and I would work in the kitchen. And the whole idea is that you know, say that I'm doing stuff that you used to think you were too hot shit to do, right? So this was about humbling yourself, about bussing tables. And that was part of my learning when I would do save or selfless service. I work in the kitchen, which is normal life. You know, I'm not a kitchen guy at all. And I would clean up after people. And I would imagine living in an ashram, you did a lot of seva. You did a lot of very mundane tasks, is that am I, is am I correct in that assumption? Well, no, and that's what's so funny is that when I went for a visit to the ashram, there was this time where I was like chopping these potatoes, and I was like, "This is never going to end." But all of a sudden, I got so absorbed in the task, yeah. and I was on a sort of kundalini high from the from the service. And when I wanted to live in the ashram, I thought I could do this. I could be chanting all day, like you know peeling carrots and cleaning up after people. And the job that I ended up getting was as an assistant to a Swami, mm-hmm. which was very different than what I had totally. thought of totally. and uh, a whole different ball game. I'm obviously really curious since when we moved to an ashram, that's it's a commitment to a certain kind of life. And at one point, You said, I have to get out of here. What what prompted you to decide to get out of there? Well, there were three factors. And because I've written a book about this, I don't know if I want to tell them all. But the surprise factor is that I started to become bored. Yeah. I was bored. I was like doing the same thing every day, going those programs, the same introductory message that we would give the people that were there for the first time, the same structure. I started to remember other callings that I had and felt that I had now had enough self-esteem to start to pursue them. Yeah. Nice. I'm a big fan of drama therapy. It's a very, it's sort of a niche that combines so different things, and I think it, it, it attracts 
people with unique backgrounds and say, I think drama therapy is what I want to do. You mentioned that you dreamed, dreamt of being an actress after seeing the Fantastics. How did you go from there to ashram to, oh, let me get a master's degree in drama therapy? So I did want to be an actress when I was young and I studied it fervently for many years. I went to Northwestern for theater. When I got out, I thought I wanted to try it again, that I felt I had enough self-esteem and I had moved beyond the crippling insecurity. And I got a job as a writer at Playbill Online. Playbill Magazine was just going online. Uh, I was doing data management. I was doing interviews. And it was a great way to be in the theater world, use my writing skills, which, by the way, I had developed even more at the ashram, uh-huh. and also be, you know, have time to go on auditions. So probably, I don't know, I was about 26 and I was in a show. It was an off, 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 off Broadway show. And I had a friend of mine come to see it and she looked at me and she was like, why did you do this show? Because it was really really bad. Yeah. And her question just caught me off guard. And I realized in that moment that I was going to be looking at a life of getting small parts in maybe decent shows and then having long spans of not working. And at that point, I had done so much personal growth and healing. I knew that that's really what I love the most about theater is its ability to help the actors transform. And that's when I thought, I want to teach acting and I want to help people grow through acting. I thought I invented trauma therapy, but (laughs) I didn't. And while I was uh, contemplating getting my master's, I talked to people at Playbill and I became the first actor advice internet columnist with a column called Ask Blair. So cool. That was cool. The column was Ask Blair. Mm -hmm. I always wonder when I see columns like that, are those real questions that people send in or are those questions that the writer invents because they think that, well, that's just a sexy question. So let me just make it up. Did you get real questions? I got real questions. I really got questions. I swear, although I have thought that when I read these other columns too, but, um, but I did get real questions. That was one of the ways that I could convince them to let me, have the role is that people would write in, how do you get a job in New York City in theater? How do you? And so once it became a thing, then people actually started sending more questions directed towards me and the kinds of things I write. You know, what really strikes me as we're talking is that um, each next step so far in your story is in a way, it's, it's a hybrid identity. It has part of past interest, but it also moves you into something new. So it's not a full break. It's a continuation, evolution, and, and your previous yearnings, desires are integrated into what you're doing next. Am I reading that correctly? You're not only reading that correctly, but I want to bring us into the present by saying that because you've described it so well, that it's really an evolution of the skills I've already developed, but yet still a yearning to grow into new skills. And that that has been true my entire life, that I have the unique ability to guide other people through similar processes. So while I'm working with leaders and organizations, I'm also now offering individuals, re, you know, going back to individual work, that holding environment, questioning environment to help them understand what all of the skills they've developed 
were purposed for in birthing this new evolution. Well, and also by going, and I'm easy thing by going back to individuals, you're going back to, to me, it's the highest degree of intimacy, right? In the work, you know, it's the yes. one-on-one. I, yes. That's what I do as an executive coach. And it's just so incredibly satisfying. I agree. We just talked about Ask Blair and writing. I'm, we're fellow writers. I'm realizing how, how many parallels you and I have as we're talking. It's ridiculous. It's um, off the charts. <laughs> but here's where I want to take the conversation. In, on my podcast, most people are writers or write books. It's not always the primary thing they do, but it just turns out that way. And I'm always curious. When I started writing seriously in the 90s, I was clear that I was writing about stuff that I wanted to write about, but I was writing for an audience. So I wasn't writing in my journal. I wasn't writing to discover new things about me. I was writing to engage an audience. So what's your relationship to your potential audience or potential reader when you decide what you want to write about? I think that I'm still discovering new answers to that question. What I will start with is a question that I have, and I will ask around, usually people in my world online, if that question resonates for them, or it's something that I'm seeing in my work, and I form a basic opinion that this is now happening, and I can talk about it as a thing. So, I have several audiences. I mean, one, one is leaders and people in the workplace. Another are, I would say, people similar, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, who are still growing, still interested in growing. I'm interested in cultivating a relationship with a younger reader because I think that the memoir of living in the ashram will appeal to those particular identity struggles. So I'm still answering that question, but I do love to write into a question to find out what my thoughts are about it and to surprise myself in that way. Since you mentioned the memoir a few times and we don't have to go into the details, I know you're shopping it around right now. It has a wonderful title and you've already used the, the verb in it, but could maybe would you just mention the title and, title, yes. and why you chose that title? The title is called This Incredible Longing. And um, when I first reached out to the teacher, a letter that I wrote was answered probably about nine months after I wrote it, having forgotten that I had written it. And she sent me a poem on a very dark day. And that poem, in that poem was the line, it is this incredible longing that makes our meeting possible. That's a, that's powerful. It's also very seductive, isn't it? When you get oh it, yes, it's yes. like okay, honey, I'm running over to you. <laughs> We're not going to get into all the dark shit about how seductive yeah. the you know the whole organization is and was. Um, that's definitely a piece of it, but we can talk about that in another podcast, maybe. <laughs> well, but but since you alluded that, we don't have to go deep in it. But in the last two years during during the pandemic, you know, there've been lots of like Netflix documentaries about people who were in spiritual slash cult-like organizations. And I'm not labeling where you were like that at all. But the common denominator is that, you know, we 
it's possible to become pulled into a very tight set of beliefs and operating norms uh, that at some point become restrictive, you know. Uh, so maybe can you speak about that without it necessarily being about your ashram, but the sense that we, we no, join like a community like, yeah, because of I, belonging and then belonging can actually get killed, right? So Totally. I do think that the ashram that I lived in had those shadier elements. I wasn't barred from leaving. There are certain check marks for cult that this ashram doesn't have. And yet it kind of fits the bill. I mean, there was groupthink and there was a set of beliefs that you were, you know, really supposed to adopt. And I think what protected me from ending up like a lot of the people in the documentaries that we've seen, and I have written for HuffPost and one or two other publications about seeing these documentaries and the ways that my ashram was similar, is that I tested it for so long. You know, there was the meeting, then there was the rejection, then I had the dream, then I still didn't want to be involved, then I watched my best friend got involved and still resisted it, then I was having a really hard time and I did, you know, I was on the edge of really doing something drastic, and I tried to remember the mantra, and it turned things around. You know, I felt this oceanic experience of inner peace after mm-hmm. after sitting down. And, and that was me by myself experiencing mm-hmm. it. So nobody could take it from me. I wasn't, when I experienced that, I wasn't in a group. So then when I went into the group and I saw some of the group think, and I saw some of the ways they pushed the classes, I could be disdainful of it because I had already owned my own experience of the power of the practices. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. a wonderful segue to the word authority that is mm-hmm. part of the work you do as an organizational and leadership consultant. And I, I love how you own the word authority. But can we play with this one? Because I, authority gone bad can go into egomania. It can go into grandiosity and all those things. Authority at its finest is what for you, Blair? I want to talk about it in two ways. There's personal authority and there's professional authority. And it's an important distinction. Personal authority, I like to say, is confidence plus creativity. It's really about being in the driver's seat of your life. Yeah, nice. Our authority can be decreased when we experience things in which we are victim, but through going through the healing process of that victimization experience, you can get back into your authority. You can get back into the driver's seat of your life. So it's always available to you, personal authority. Professional authority is different because the power that you have is dictated by the role that you're playing in an organization. So... You can be a person that is very evolved and standing in your 
personal authority. But if you're working in an organization and you're sort of mid-level, you can't necessarily bring all that authority into the role only as it pertains to what you're doing. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Right. And to speak about authority gone bad, I would argue that those people who abuse their sense of personal authority are not actually in their authority at all. That they're being driven by something else. And, you know, the true aspects of who they are have kind of fled the building and they're on some kind of track. They're very out of control, in all honesty. Yeah. Yeah doesn't mean they're not powerful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the same thing is, I, I don't want to go back to the spiritual gurus, but the same thing is true of spiritual gurus who have incredible authority, but there are all these tales of it going off the rails or going wrong and gurus abusing the authority they have. And we don't need to go into the mud with that, but as you're describing it, it's, I'm seeing how all of it is connected. That's why you you talk about professional role, and this is where my mind went. went. Um, When I first met you, you were a single woman. And I I believe, and if I'm wrong, correct me, that you had never been married. I don't know if you were looking to be married, but sometime in your 40s, you met a fellow, wonderful man who I had the privilege of meeting recently in L.A., and you did get married. And, uh, well, let's just stop there. Um, how, how did that come about? Were you surprised? Did you expect it? Did you just surrender to what was happening? How did it go from, oh, I'm getting, how did it get to I'm getting married now? I mean, do you have another hour? Uh, uh <laughs> I, just give me the juicy details, Blair, okay? Um, I did want to be married. I had wanted to be married since my late 20s. I uh-huh. thought it was going to happen with someone who got cold feet and left. I've been trying ever since that particular relationship to find the right partner. And it took the rest of my 30s and most of my 40s before I met him. And what was it about Aaron? There are two things. I mean, first of all, he was incredibly persistent. Uh I got to test him for a long time. And he kept showing up. And he kept showing up. And he kept showing up. I mean, I could say so many nice things about my husband. He's calm. He's caring. He's laid back. He's very easy to be with, but we have similar visions and we are both late in life trying to recreate ourselves. And that's a wonderful joint vision for us because we know exactly what we're doing together and how to support each other. So there's timing and there are so many things about him, but I can also say that, you know, I had spent so much time data gathering with all the men that I had these relationships. (laughs) Lots of research, Blair Glazer. Lots of research that, you know, after a nice period of testing, I really got, okay, you know, this is about as good as it's going to get. This is a high quality partner for me. Uh, I just appreciate the way you described your journey into, into marriage since we talk about acting and roles, professional roles, you know, um, 
husband and wife are our roles that we can sort mm. of settle into. We can make choices about it. Um, maybe those roles don't are completely irrelevant in your marriage. I don't know, but how does that play out in your fairly new marriage with Aaron? It's been how many years? It'll be four in October. Four. I'm so glad you asked that because I think when we met, I was really working on some thought leadership about leadership in intimacy. And I have brought a lot of those skills and ideas into our relationship. They're definitely roles, but one of the things that Aaron and I do together is discuss who's in charge of what. So we make it very conscious, you know, I'm in charge of the kitchen (laughs) and he understands that, you know, I delegate cleaning to him that works. We don't fight about it anymore because it's just an understood at the same time, he really takes care of the house. So if there are things that I have questions about, if there are things that I want to be fixed, I run it by him. He's really the one that has the final authority on whether or not we're going to do what I want based on a number of things, you know, the availability, the finances, all of those things. So we use our different skill sets in those ways. It looks a little traditional, but it's kind of not in the other ways too. Yeah. And it's okay to be a little traditional and uh, all of that. Oh my God, I've forgotten that in today's world. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I think you're right. Yeah. Now you you use this beautiful phrase, my man. I'm paraphrasing now, but you just said about we're we're two people who are a little later in life are reinventing themselves, and we have a clear vision for what we want. And as part of your reinvention, at a certain stage in your lives, you you were living in sexy, glamorous Woodstock, New York, and you picked up and you live in a very wonderful Venice, California. Was it easy to make the decision? Was it difficult? Um, how was the adjustment to go? You know, people joke about the New York, LA difference. Describe your experience of that. The Hudson Valley was such an incredible home for so long. And part of me will always live there in the vistas and the weather and my community. But it was so exciting to, now that I had a partner, venture out and create a new life with him. And he'd lived in L.A. for a long time. I'd lived in L.A. before I got involved with the ashram. But this was going to be creating, co-creating our life rather than him stepping into, I mean, I met him in the Hudson Valley, but it was really my home. And, you know, there's something about together just creating it anew that felt right And moving west felt right to that. And I got to say, I don't have to do winter again. And that feels incredible. (laughs) I know you live in Florida. Hello, greetings from Florida. (laughs) We thought we were going to try it out for like six months. And then the pandemic happened a month after we moved here. And, you know, the best thing was being able to get outside every day because it wasn't 20 degrees So I really enjoyed that. Um, But we didn't really get to give it much of a try because we were in lockdown. So we decided to stay. And I'm very happy. And we're both very happy here. 
if you were to give our listeners a little, because this is called the My Fourth Act podcast, and I don't want to force my language on you, but this is a new act for both of you, both together and in your individual pursuits, right? So beyond being there with a partner who's ready to explore, what are you exploring for yourself right now, Blair? I'm looking for what my impact is going to look like in my fourth act. And there are a couple of avenues that I'm very inspired by. I love my executive coaching work and leadership and organizational development. I love it. And uh, moving out here, I've been able to work with two companies in the area so far. I love writing. And since I've moved here, I've sold pieces to publications that have broadcast my work to a wider audience. And I'm going to continue on with that as I also try to find a home for this book. And then the third thing I'm kind of developing and it's still in the question nascent phase, but it is about moving back to working with people in a more personal way on their personal issues. And it has to do with what I'm calling the COVID reset. I'm finding a lot of people that I'm talking to are in a phase of deep disorientation. And having spoken to you about how I've lived my life, you can understand that that's a territory that I'm familiar with. So about being able to reach people in that phase and say, hey, I'm a partner for you here. I can be a creative thought partner, a way to contain all of the things that you're uh, experiencing, exploring, help you be intentional about your data gathering, about how you want to move forward in your life. So I'm moving back towards that. You know, we didn't talk that much about the phase where I was actually a therapist for 15 years, um, working mostly with women in empowerment and running empowerment workshops. So it's kind of going back to that, but different. And I, that's as much as I can say about it right now. No, I know what I'm, what I'm appreciating about it is I, I hear you saying it in the spirit of, let's say, appreciative discovery, you know, as you're being led back to something, but at the same time, finding why that work is important now in our time. So you mentioned this, you mentioned your writing. I've had the pleasure of reading some of the pieces you published in the last year. I mean, you're such a good writer and you're getting strong reactions to the pieces you're writing. If you were to just pick one, if the listeners wanted to read one piece that I'm especially proud of, or I'm proud of the story this piece tells or the message it delivers, where would you send them? Wow. Well, you are asking me to like pick my favorite child. Yes, I am. You can do it, Blair. You can pick a favorite child. Oh my God, I have I have two. But all right, so you're, you're um, allowed to have two. Mention one two. of the pieces that I'm really proud of is called "When Your Mother Looks Younger Than You," and I delve into my relationship with my very beautiful and very, I would say, invested in her beauty mother. That piece, you know, took a long time to write and a long time to sell. And it found a great home on Oldster, which is an author named Sari Botton's Substack magazine. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other one that got a big reaction and even it caused one of my idols to reach out to me, Clarissa Pincola Estes, yeah. is about a man stealing my ideas 
and the pitiful way I handled it and what I would do differently and why it's important for today's workplace. So it's yeah, called I've, I've read both. Huffington Post. Or HuffPost. I, I, I recommend both highly. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. I want to hang out with your mom for a moment and then I want to offer my mom as an example. My mom was very beautiful. Uh, she, I mean, she's 97. She's still a beautiful woman. But at some point she started to get vitiligo, which is, you know, when the skin gets white, so what Michael Jackson had, and it was not very visible. But my sense was that when that was happening, she became even more obsessed with how she looked. It became even more important. And the way it was played out in relationship to me, especially, but perhaps my brother is we had to look perfect so she looked perfect, if that makes sense. We had to wear the right outfits so we represented her well. So there was an inordinate obsession with how her sons looked as a representation of her beauty. How did your mom's uh, beautiful appearance get played out in relationship to you? I'm curious. Well, I think we have a very similar experience. Yeah. And... You know, as a woman, and maybe you had this experience too, but I definitely felt her contempt and internalized it. So I had to work through a lot of my own feelings of inadequacy around the way I looked. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. So based on what you, Blair, know about life today, if you had the chance to be a little fairy godmother and, and, and whisper some wisdom into, into younger Blair who wants to be an actress, and this is not about changing the trajectory of your life. This is, we all have a chance to impart wisdom to others. What kind of wisdom would you like to share with her if you had the chance to do that? Okay, I'm, I hope this is not a disappointing answer, but <laughs> I wouldn't share any wisdom from how I am now with her then because she wouldn't understand what I was talking about. Uh And she was incredibly resourceful. Uh I was able to draw in mentors at a young age. I was able to get questions that I couldn't even articulate answered through books and things that people that I was experienced, you know, exposed to. So I do want to, you know, I mean, one of the things that I had someone back then tell me is that feelings change. That was so powerful to me then. Mm -hmm. That was something she could almost hear. She could barely remember, but um, that was a really big one for me then. So I'm sorry if that's a disappointing answer. No, not at all. The answer, any answer is of interest to me. (laughs) So, um, I mean, the the deeper question is, what are we ready to hear when, right? And that's an interesting one. And, And who do we choose to share information with, right? And our understanding of that social context. Some of our listeners might be listening to you and go, I, I just, my, Blair has, has done so many different things in life. You definitely had multiple acts and there will be more. I mean, you're not done. But if somebody's listening and has inklings about, uh, well, 
maybe I would try this or maybe I would try that, but I don't know how, like, I will never succeed at it. Or so many other people already doing that, or uh, who am I to say that I should do that? Or I'm going to make you fool of myself or, you know, those doubts, uh, what, as a, uh, as an authority mentor, as a psychotherapist, what kind of thoughts do you have about that? You know, there's a lot of talk these days about imposter syndrome. Yeah. Every time someone talks about it, they think that they're like the only one that has it or that, you know, they shouldn't have it and they should fix it. It's always been by my side, the imposter syndrome. It lives in the leaders that I work with. I haven't met anyone that doesn't have some sense of doubt or inadequacy that they're up against. And basically, my best shot at helping you move forward with your inner dreams is to say, ignore it, ignore, 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 find what it is that you want to do more important than those voices. It's not going to be an easy battle, but it is going to be a battle nonetheless. And if you need help, call me. (laughs) On that wonderful note, first of all, thank you for the gift of this conversation. And, And if people want to learn more about you or find you, where, where would you like to direct them? My website is blairglazer.com. That's B-L-A-I-R-G-L-A-S-E-R. I'll be having information about my COVID reset program up soon. But in the meantime, you'll find everything you need to learn about me and how to contact me. I'm also on Twitter at Blair Glazer. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and, you know, I don't like, I, I find LinkedIn very dry, but, you know, I, I guess if you're a LinkedIn person, you can connect me with me there too. In other words, Blair gets around and you can find her. Thank you, Blair. It was such a pleasure for me to have the chat with you. And until we speak again, be well. You too. Such a joy. Thank you, Akeem. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.